All right, I think it's the perfect time to kick things off. We didn't get all dressed up for nothing, so let's do this. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the USA Rugby Happy Hour Live here on Twitter Spaces. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got about an hour to talk about USA Rugby, specifically tonight, the state of USA Rugby, and we'll cover some other things as well. But uh, to get updates on future shows and news about USA Rugby, Major League Rugby, and more, Follow Eagles Overseas and Rugby Morning here on Twitter and other social media channels. And also do us a favor, share the show with your friends. But we'd love to have people come in here in a live situation uh, like we have tonight to ask questions of us, the host, or our guests. I am Bill Baker of Eagles Overseas. And my co-host, who is finally back on the East Coast, is John Fitzpatrick. What's up, Fitzy? Hey, Bill. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, excited to be back. I'm a little jet lagged, but uh, it's no excuse for tonight's show. Yeah, so you got the kids to bed, huh? Barely. You know, I guess just a little bit of kids' Tylenol and just knocks them right out. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> just kidding. Were you able to keep up in some of the stories? You have some news that came out today. No, what happened? Fill me in. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, for a while there, there was no senior 15 head coaches. Now we have a couple interim coaches. I think everyone's heard the news So by, by now, especially in this group right now. of eight people in here. Uh, we've got two interim coaches to USA assistant coaches, Scott Lawrence and Richard Ashfield have accepted roles as interim head coach. And I'm not reading that off the paper in front of me uh, for the men's and women's Eagles respectively. Uh, I like that. What do you think? Well, you got to put someone in the role. I guess, you know, someone on Twitter said interim until when, you know, so um, it um, a little, I don't know about surprising about Rob King, you know, Rob, Rob's been on our show a number of times. He was always very generous with his time answering our silly questions. Um, But, uh, you know, he, of course, stepped down. Maybe he was forced out. But, uh, you know, I think change is necessary, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that and uh, some other things in this next hour or so. But what was your take on it? No, you're right. I I mean, I'm going to miss Rob Kane. He was uh, really accessible to us and other journalists here in this country and real nice guy. And he, he actually uh, he wrote us that nice note um, thanking us for what we've done and over over the time of his his tenure. So good to talk to, and I think he did pretty well with the USA Women's Team. I know that the the women uh, loved him as a coach, um, but we do wish him good luck in his next endeavor. But you know, what? I'm excited about these next two. And actually, we won't get too much into it about Scott Lawrence and Richard Ashfield until we get more into our guests in a few minutes here. But I'm excited about the possibility of these two coaches. But other stuff, real quick, uh, Fitz, you know. Something came out on Fox Broadcast uh, uh, Wire. You want to talk about that? Yeah, how about that? We're getting one day closer to the opening weekend of Major League Rugby. They and Fox Sports announced the national TV schedule for the first two months. So everything's coming back, at least the national broadcast on on Fox Sports 1 and and Fox Sports 2. And then, of course, you know, if if, um, the other games that aren't airing on on those will be streaming live and free on the Rugby Network, which is super cool. But... You know, what a great first weekend. Um, you know, San Diego Legion, they've retooled quite a bit. Got a great new kits that were released today. They're taking on Utah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the defending MLR champ Seattle Seawolves against the newly renamed New York Ironworkers. Which uh, which match are you most looking forward to that first weekend? Well, probably the Seattle and New York match. I, I just love the East Coast, West Coast kind of deal. And then I've still got to get used to the Ironworkers as a name. It doesn't roll off the tongue as I, I would like it to, but uh, hey, it's New York. It's kind of, it fits. But, you know, keeping up with, um, we're just talking about uh, USA Women's head coach coming up here. Let's talk about that real quick. USA Eagle 264 Christine Summer announced her retirement. She's also a friend of the show. She's been on the Eagle Eyed Rugby podcast a couple times, and we've tried to get her on this show, but schedules had not work out. But 
She's retiring, one of the first USA women to play in Premier 15s in the UK, spending time with Harlequins and Gloucester Hartbury. Also finished her, finishes her international career with 25 caps. That's, that's nice. Uh, and staying with USA with women's rugby in Premier 15s, big match this weekend, extra Chiefs against Sales Sharks. Potentially 12 Eagles could be on that pitch at once, which would be great. I'm assuming it's going to be streamed by one of the teams. I think I keep them getting mixed up. I think Sales Sharks tend to stream their games. Check that out. I'm definitely going to watch that game. But yeah, anything you're going to be watching this weekend, Fitzy? We're going to get to our guest next. But what do you think? What's coming up for you? Any matches you're going to watch? Yeah, I was, you know, I was looking at the <clears throat> Premier 15s matchup, and right now it doesn't look like it's going to stir the two matches that they stream every weekend. It doesn't look like that's one. But I think you're right. I think that might be something where maybe on um, one of the the club's YouTube pages it, it comes up, and hopefully that's the case because yeah, that's going to be exciting with the the number of women's eagles that are going to be playing in, in that one. I think that might even be a 9 a.m. kickoff too. So rugby, rugby first for uh, breakfast sounds about right. Let's move on. Uh, just a quick note for your listeners out there. Uh, this is online, internet, all that fun stuff. And at times we're going to break up. It's going to break up. My, my mic's going to break up once in a while for whatever reason. We haven't perfected it yet. Uh, I've been talking, talking to Elon Musk, uh, <laughs> but we're working on it. With that said, we'd love to have you come up here and ask questions of us and our guests tonight. Anything rugby related or, you know, who knows, our guests might have, you know, some information about uh, great hotels in northern Michigan, but or, or in the Kansas City area. Anyway, our guest tonight is well a man with so many titles we just couldn't choose. So I guess we're going to call him Rugby Guy. Um, no relation to Broccoli Guy or Guy Ritchie. Uh, let's all welcome Pat Clifton. Pat, how are you? I'm great, guys. Rugby Guy is the best title ever. And uh, thanks for having me. My first ever Twitter space. I think I accidentally wandered into one of your early Twitter spaces and immediately exited when I felt awkward and naked and didn't know what I was doing. I don't feel much different tonight. I was relieved to get on and see this audio only. So that's good. That's you should see the amount of pomade in my hair that I had ready to get ready for tonight. But <laughs> Hey, whatever you need to do to get ready for this kind of thing, you do it. I'm not even wearing pants, but that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't either as a rule. I'm not. I mean, that's just, but that's anytime I'm on camera. <laughs> so, Pat, let's get right into it. Uh, we just talked about the latest news of two new interim coaches with Scott Lawrence and Richard Ashfield. I've accepted the roles. Um, two men with quality credentials. Most of us are more familiar with Scott Lawrence and Richard Ashfield, but I'm just going to run through a couple of things here. You know, uh, Ashfield, a USA women's assistant coach since 2014, Stanford, Stanford University assistant coach, Ireland RFU development officer, and a number of roles in the New England area, also collegiate and women's um, um, league as well in Boston. Uh, Scott Lawrence, uh, former Atlanta head coach, obviously, USA senior side defensive coach, USA selects head coach, U20 life head co- or coach, high performance manager, also named interim GM of the men's 15 high performance. I don't know who has a, a, a better credentials right now as far as an American coach to become the new USA head coach, possibly full-time. Uh, what's your take on these two gentlemen? Well, I'm going to have to plead ignorance on on Richard Ashfield. To be mm-hmm. honest with you, I, I, as you guys started talking about him, I was like, oh, crap, they might ask me about him. So I Googled him a little bit. And, uh, you know, and I, by plead ignorance, I mean, like, guilty as charged, right? I should know more about it than I do. Um, but <laughs> the only thing that jumps to mind is, He's the assistant coach of the current team. All right, that makes sense. But he's lacking any real head coaching notable roles um, in his resume that I've seen. 
right? So <laughs> assistant coach at Stanford, um, that's maybe a little bit alarming. It's not the end of the world. He's, he knows the program. He knows the team. And he's just interim. But what rings to mind is when I saw Scott Lawrence, right. I think most of American rugby would probably be like, man, I love this. I just wish the interim part wasn't in the headline. Um, but with Richard Ashfield, just looking at complete face value, I'm not so sure that would be the same reaction um, for him. So I, you know, my first inclination is to say, well, Scott Lawrence, that should be the long-term head coach. Richard Ashfield, that feels very interim. But that's just my initial reaction. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. And, and I think a lot of people were wondering where Scott Lawrence was for a short time. Obviously, he, he left Atlanta. It, it felt like it's like, okay, where is he? Where is he? Why isn't he on the sidelines with um, you know Gary Gold, that kind of thing? So he definitely has more of a credential say Asheville does nothing again nothing against Asheville but Asheville does, definitely has um, connection with the current player pool so I think that's excellent as far as being an interim coach but I don't know I, I think it's it's I think it makes USA rugby fans excited about Scott Lawrence as far as the men's program goes so honestly this is probably a test for both coaches wouldn't you think I think that's a fair that's a fair guess uh it's his guess as good as anyone that I could come up with Scott I, look it's not really a test Scott is thought of as the coaching American guru. If you'd ask any coach in the country worth their salt, and, and, you know, obviously there's some margin for error here. Overwhelmingly, they would have said Scott is the guy who amongst us should be the one who should get a chance. Um, And it's almost like been unchallenged for a number of years that he is the best domestic coach. Um, Now that is outside of the Berkeley strawberry Canyon bubble um, and, and the Jack Clark fans of the world. Um, But, but I think throughout most of America, people have said Scott Lawrence is the one who won us the junior world trophy with the U twenties, which is a major um, significant watershed moment for any American HP age grade, especially on the men's side to win something like that. Um, So, and that's still looked at, you know, almost like the dream team of American men's HP, if you will, especially American men's 15s HP. That's like the high watermark that we've had in a number of years was our U20s winning that trophy. And he was the guy that was the head coach. So, and Scott's been an assistant under a number of people. It makes a ton of sense. He's a really good coach, defensive minded, um, has his style. And I think his style fits American rugby. It's very physical. It's very confrontational. It's what rugby ATL style has been. Um, and so I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I would love to see Scott there long term. Yeah, Pat Will said, I think a lot of USA rugby fans would love to see Scott there long term. And I guess it's a wait and see. There's certainly a, a tumultuous time. But uh, let's let's jump right into it. Let's let's talk about this. We've had a couple of months now to maybe process the final qualification tournament uh, result. But uh, what was your initial reaction? And then what ha- – I mean, obviously, we, we read the three-part series. And we'll get that in a bit. But, yeah, fill us in on your reaction to USA, you know, their draw with Portugal and then failing to qualify on the third chance to rugby – for the Rugby World Cup. Were you surprised by that? I, I mean, yeah, a little bit I was. A little bit I was. Um, not overwhelmingly. I just think it's a tough place to be <laughs> in, in sport, regardless of what the sport is, to be the team that everyone expects you to win and is just waiting for you to win. And that's exactly the scenario they found themselves in, not just in the repechage, but I think against Chile. I think the the smarter, educated rugby fan who could uh, do a little bit of their own homework, so to speak, or, or, or looked a couple du- cuts deeper than everybody else knew that Chile was like, this is going to be a coin flip. This is going to be a game. But the repechage, I think most people just assumed was in the bag. You know, and I was at that Chile game and uh, I may have had one or two uh 
too many adult uh, beverages. Uh, but I remember the overwhelming, you know, thought was, ah, well, we'll just qualify in a few months. We just postponed the qualification. So I, I, I got to say, I was surprised, probably a little bit less surprised than the general population. You know, it's just a tough place to be. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think the point that I wanted to make in the article, because part of what prompted me to write it, the story or whatever you want to call it was, just seeing so many people react the same way I saw us react in 2015, right? When uh, we went winless at the World Cup and then they put Mike Tolkien's head on a on a, a stake as though he had never done anything good in the American rugby community ever and and, and just use him as, as uh, kind of this talisman for our failures. And the reality is this World Cup loss is a long time in coming. And even if we had av- avoided it, we'd be in materially the same spot. So that was my first reaction, you know, to be honest, was not super surprised, but I think, and, I, and I'll be honest here, not that I was, I was not rooting for us to miss the World Cup. Let me be, well, like, I wasn't even engaged enough to be in a headspace to be like, I hope we lose for a reason. But that said, the United States went back to the World Cup this year after having missed out on the last one. And that last one was a giant cultural organizational shakeup. I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between that one and this one. And there's been people in the community for a long time who I think have been saying, we need a bigger failure so that we have to start from the ground up. And that was another one of my thoughts. I could just hear those people's kind of uh, opinions echoing in my ear. So that's kind of, you know, looking back on it now, my initial reaction, if that makes sense. Gotcha. And that's, that's a good segue into kind of, let's jump into the three-part series. Why not? So uh, you talked a little initially about some of your thoughts, but then what really was the inspiration for you to sit down and actually type out, what was that? 13,000 words about the state <laughs> of play. Like, fill us in on what prompted Pat to be like, all right, damn it, I got to write this. Well, for one, if you've ever written any of my rugby or read any of my rugby stuff in the past, and I was constipated. It's been a while. But I mean, ultimately it was just, it's everyone's blaming a coach or they're blaming a couple of maybe going a few meters upstream from the head coach and making their blame there. And and like, since I've been around USA rugby, there's been some themes. And it, one of them is that the longer you in USA rugby or you're involved in American rugby, generally the more sour you are on it. And a lot of the really, you know, people that I, when I was coming into it, guys like Kurt Oler and some of the other people that were, I would say truth to power sayers at that time, kind of fade off and go away. And part of it, I think, is, look, I don't think American rugby has been struggling in the 16 years I've been involved and reportedly based on the conversations I've had and anecdotally over that 16 years, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Like one of the responses I got back was, this is the exact same as it was in the late 80s when I left, okay? And world rugby's influence was not the same necessarily in the late 80s as it was now. But why? What is the answer? Are we just the worst hirers in the world? We just can't hire anyone. We're just one CEO away or one good plan away. That didn't make sense to me. And, uh, you know, this has to be more systemic. This has to be deeper than that. This isn't one person's fault, but that is all we ever get. That's the only narrative we ever get is fire this coach, fire this CEO. I haven't heard anyone say, damn you, Nigel Melville in a long time, but for a long time, that was how we basically dealt with every single problem we had with American rugby as we just put it at his feet. Well, he's been gone for too long to keep doing that. So at the end of the day, I felt like this was a systemic problem and it was much bigger than one coach. And I wanted to sit down and write and I knew the dots were would connect once I did that. And, and writing mm-hmm. is kind of how I think a little bit. And I was able to 
kind of put it together in a, in a way that made sense. And, and so that's why I did it. I just like, I needed, I need to understand why we have the exact same problem over and over and over again and never move on. And it's not because we're bad hirers or every CEO we've ever had has been a bad person or a bad, um, in a bad position or in a bad scenario or the same with the board. So that was essentially it. I needed to find an answer as to why we're not doing so well. And I started putting pen to paper and I started liking some of the things they came up with. And so I wanted to share it. Got it. And for, for those who just jumped in, we're talking about the, the three part series state of play that, PAC graciously let Rugby Morning publish. Shameless plug, you can find it on our website. But Pat, for those who, you know, who maybe are new to the scene and don't know who you are, what what makes you uniquely qualified to actually write that piece? <laughs> I don't know if uniquely, I mean, there's a bunch of people who could do it, but like the reality, I started writing for Rugby Magazine in 2009. At the time, there were very few people that were writing about the game full time. I could name them. They were Jackie Finland, Alex Goff, and Ed Haggerty. And, and Alex and Jackie have been writing full time pretty much ever since then. And I can't name anybody besides them who's been writing longer than me full time about American rugby. Um, so I, I wrote under them and worked for them. And they were my editors for a number of years. And then like 2014, they left the company and I became like the head writer, head editor of rugby magazine and rugby today. And I kind of covered the game a a little bit more investigatively, I think than some of my counterparts and, and kind of wanted to hold uh, USA rugby to account. And so, and and let's be honest, part of that was I was a UWS employee, United world sports employee, and um, we were an adversary of world rugby. So that was part of um, kind of my, my background. And and I think an important part of just disclosure here, but so I've been, watching USA Rugby from a watchful journalistic eye for a very long time. And um, I'll just, I usually don't shy away from controversy, but like Matt McCarthy said it a couple of weeks ago on his rugby wrap up podcast. Um, and it was his intro saying, basically ask questions of USA Rugby. I can't because I practice access journalism and I may have to give Matt three big hugs to make sure that he knows that that's not an insult. I actually am saying that because I appreciated his honesty in that. The reality is most of the people that make their money in the game in American rugby now um, writing about it need access. And it's difficult for them to be able to go after or poke a lot of questions or peel back an onion because there's consequences that could easily be levied against them. And since about 2014, I'm the only writer in American rugby who had someone behind him that said, don't worry about what anybody else says, just write what is the truth. Um, So that's kind of my background as a writer. And um, and and why I felt like maybe I could swing a little harder at this piece than any of the other people who are writing a lot more actively. I've got the same uh, backing for my writing, but no one wants to read it anyway. Um, <laughs> so, well, you know, one thing I noticed in your writing, uh, the, the series, Pat, um, not a lot of mention of COVID. Obviously, that's not the only thing. There was a lot more going on before COVID. But prior to COVID, there were many unions around the world or clubs and, and whatever else that had financial issues. And COVID seemed to be the tipping point for many of those of those unions. So as you see it, you know, what were some of those issues looming uh, right before COVID um, for USA Rugby? I mean, the biggest ones there was, look, the, <coughs> RIM was a huge failure, right? RIM, the USA Rugby said, take all of our revenue streams, RIM, and you can have them. You can write us a check every year in exchange for them. And then, you know, you're, you're supposed to give us royalties on the back end when you're super successful. And that would have potentially worked, but RIM ended up being this huge debt bomb and a huge bubble in and of itself and costing a ton of money and giving 
and USA Rugby was, you know, essentially the one holding the bag on that debt at the end of the day. And so RIM was this for-profit commercial arm, interesting kind of, I think, really aggressive venture that ended up in a ton of debt for USA Rugby, more than they could really handle. That was a big one. And a big part of RIM was the Rugby World Cup Sevens. And that was part of its origin story. It's part of why RIM was existed. So without, it's, 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 USA Rugby does not go bankrupt without hosting Rugby World Cup 2018, the Sevens mm-hmm. World Cup in San Francisco. That's a huge one of the legs of this table that had to fall. Another one that I, I alluded to in the story is United World Sports. John Prusback sued them. Um, it was a $40 million lawsuit. Um, his company sued them, I should say. Uh, it was a $40 million lawsuit. And uh, that cost USA Rugby a significant amount of money. We'll never really know exactly how much, um, but they settled in arbitration after the fact. And so they, th- that was a, a drain on them while they were trying to come up with money. Then there was the HP overspend, which was very significant, almost a million dollars the year before, you know, months before they go bankrupt. They spent almost a million dollars more than they actually had allocated and budgeted on the men's national team leading up into and through the the 2019 World Cup. So those are some of the bigger sort of blows financially that USA Rugby was dealing with that led to bankruptcy, you know, just on the other side of COVID. Obviously, COVID was a huge Uh, issue, uh, but they were heading that direction anyway. Yeah, of course. Uh, Listeners, again, we'd love to have you up here and ask questions. Uh, Request in the bottom left of your phone. And we'll get you up here right away again. Uh, we got Pat Clifton, uh, John Fitzpatrick from Rugby Morning, and myself, Bill Baker from Eagles Overseas. Uh, coming up, ask questions. You guys drive this show. We have a bunch of questions written down for Pat. But, um, you know, again, we'd rather have you guys ask questions. And right on cue is my buddy Sean Elms from uh, in Georgia. Atlanta. And USA Rugby South. What's up? Hey, hey buddy. Uh uh, Pat, I really enjoyed your uh, your work. I have enjoyed your work. I really enjoyed the the piece that you wrote. Um, I I think it really brought to mind a lot of the the politics and the economics that you know as a as a coach and just a fan. I don't really ever get into the weeds about, but as you as just as grown up, you start saying these things and they all start kind of fitting and making sense. Um, I had very little insight into this, but I have a couple friends and guys that I've coached who've been Eagles, and none of them ever felt like except for the ones that were, you know, making money overseas, felt like being a part of the Eagle system was some, you know, gallivanting on a yacht drinking Cristal. So where do you think that overspend, that million-dollar overspend of high performance went that was so significantly different than years past the money that was budgeted for the Eagles? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of programming in a World Cup year more than any other year. So, right, if you're spending, you know – a 20% extra on everything uh, in a world cup year where you're, you know, there's a lot more of everything then that can add up pretty quickly. Um, so there's that. I, you know, that's a good question. I, I can't tell you exactly. I can tell you that not that long before. So one coach before the 2019 world cup after matches, at least on one occasion, they ate subway, which is pretty unacceptable from an international rugby standpoint. And that was a pretty big internal controversy that they dealt with. That did not happen in the lead up in two and through the 2019 World Cup. I remember, if I remember right, they had a pretty significant domestic uh, gathering in Colorado. I think it might have been in the mountains um, and in the rural parts, but they had a domestic gathering um, before they ever left for Japan. And that was something that was unique to the previous World Cup cycle, if I remember correctly. Like that's, yeah. I'm reaching a little bit on that one. But um, 
all that to say, like everybody wouldn't have had to walk away with like a, a Gucci bag in order to account for that eight hundred thousand dollars. Right, right. There's a, one other thing I want to touch on. Going back to the Scott Lawrence thing, I I'm a Scott Lawrence fan. I've coached with him. I've coached under him. Um, I think he's obviously exceptional and well uh, well situated for the job. That was also his defense. Like that was his system. A lot of those players are players that he had selected in the past. Uh, or had been a part of the selection committee, some of those guys he'd actually coached straight up. Those were that was his defense that gave up the points against Chile, against Portugal, and in the the lead up to there. And it was super painful for me because I was Stephen Brett's offense as well. Do sure. you see an exit strategy ideologically for us to be successful? Just signing Scott right now. Let's say he stays on. Are there not red flags there? There are. I, I, let's be. I I kind of led with. I it may, maybe I didn't veil my thinking as well as I thought I did. But like, like Scott is thought of as the most highly thought of coach in, in America, and I almost think the myth of Scott and how good Scott is is impossible to live up to in person. That's my personal opinion. And knowing people who have coached under him, who have played for him, um, there's no coach on the world that's infallible. Scott does have a great system. I believe Scott is a really, really good coach, and I think probably the best position to become the national team coach right now and move the game line forward. But by no stretch do I think Scott is like a panacea and he's going to fix everything. I think Scott needs to do what he did with the junior World trophy and to surround himself with some really good IP, some really good coaches, and 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 trust them to do their job and and, and USA Rugby needs to give them the rope to do their job, right? Allow them uh, some slack to, to give them the opportunity to have some failures because that's what's inevitable on the path of success. But to not, like, if you want to break up the Scott Lawrence will lead us to uh, the promised land uh, parade, I'm all here for that because it's not a panacea. It's not going to be easy. But I do think that he's the best man for the job, um, all that considered. Good stuff, Sean. Love the questions. And for those who don't follow the USA Rugby South account on Instagram, please do. Sean is a hilarious follow. Um, I crack up every moment reading his stuff. But, Bill, back to you. Yeah, definitely. Their posts on Instagram, Twitter, Instagram is great. Um, Let's go on to John. John, good to see you up here again. Really good chat. Pat, I've read those articles. They're really interesting. Um, Hey, this might be slightly off topic, so I'm happy for you guys to answer this one at the end if you prefer. I can't stay listening until the end of the show, unfortunately, but I just wondered what everyone's view on how the Chicago MLR team, given everything in Pat's article about, you know, money flows and and ownership and all that, how are they tracking um, and is that likely to be a uh, good thing for the league or not, just in terms of are they going to be set up in time for the new year? And is are all the, have we have we learnt from the mistakes of the past with other new teams? I'm happy to to field the on the front end. Chicago is unique. There is no other team that has entered the league in the way that the Chicago Hounds have. Every other team has bought in as a share owner of Major League Rugby. Right? They have paid the franchise fee. They own a piece of the league. The Chicago Hounds don't. The Chicago Hounds have effectively come into the league on a lease basis to where they do not own uh, any stake in the actual Major League Rugby. So uh, if there was some major investment in a dividend to be passed around by the MLO owners, the Chicago Hounds would have to sit out on that. Um, So that's a unique, very unique setup. And it was something that was done almost out of desperation because you had L.A. and Austin leaving. The league doesn't want to tell a story of shrinkage. They want to tell a story of growth in some capacity. They had tried and had a lot of people at the table for a long time to try and 
make that sale um, and, and actually get a good sale across the line. At one point, L.A. had an offer on the table, um, but Chicago was coming in really as a leasee of Major League Rugby. They own the Hounds. They own their own revenue streams. They own their own team. But the really, you know, some of the lessons of the past that you referenced um, might not apply to Chicago because they're coming in in such a unique fashion. That said, I think very highly of the Chicago market. Um, there was another ownership group there, and, and I, I got to meet with them and, and kind of go through the, the stadium the Hounds are playing in and, and see some of their ideas. Um, and I think Chicago has as good a chance as any market to do really, really, really well. Um, so I think it's a good thing that Chicago's in. Uh, I like the bet, that, but it is a bet, and it is unique, um, a unique entrance for you know compared to any other team that's in Major League Rugby. And I, I think there's no doubt they're going to be you know, a strong team from the beginning. They're not just an expansion team. What do you think, Pat? Oh, <laughs> yeah, without question. James English could be GM of the year without having to identify too many of his own guys. They um, Austin and L.A., they got a treasure trove of talent, and they did a really smart job, I think, of acquiring people from around uh, the league. I think Chicago is going to be right up there real quick. Early you mentioned Nigel uh, Melba, which I'm great you brought him up. I personally, I kind of feel like issues began under his um, under his control, under his leadership. And I'm not saying they couldn't have been fixed after him. I just feel like things started to go south under him. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, after 2006, <coughs> it seemed like USA Rugby was doing some stuff that just makes sense. You know, the Rugby Channel um, sanctioning pro rugby when I don't think they had had the rights to do that, you know. What they did um, with WS, uh, what was it, the perpetual rights? I don't think they had the rights to do that because it wasn't their event. It wasn't USA Rugby's event. So am I wrong by saying maybe things started to go south underneath Melville? I wish I could prove to you that you're wrong. Um, the rugby internet in America isn't – I mean, I could get in the Wayback Machine, but really the only person who I could trust their writing – and that's – I mean, I'm sure Alex had great writing about it, but, like, Ed Haggerty has a long uh, – log of, of writing though I could go back and check it against it and Kurt Oler does um, a gain line he had, a, he had a, a good long one and I wish I could pull those out and give you better examples and I tried to reference them and sitting down to write this stuff they were too hard to get to I, my hypothesis and my belief is that that's not the case I believe it goes back further than Nigel but I don't have any proof of it because I came into the game when Nigel was the CEO um, and and I think that I would offer my guess, and this is, like I said, a very educated guess, but my guess is that Nigel happened to be the CEO of American of USA Rugby at a time when World Rugby was looking for its next growth market, and it was kind of out of spots, and it was Japan and the United States, and I think this 2019, or this 2031 World Cup was originally supposed to be the 2027 World Cup, and has been in the works for several CEOs of USA Rugby and World Rugby. So Nigel might have just been there when World Rugby finally turned its attention to USA Rugby and says, we're going to grow it. Now's the time. This is our final growth market. Let's go for it. Um, and so he may have just been the person, the watchdog in charge at the time. I, I really believe that USA Rugby and World Rugby's relationship is that intricate. I don't think it's dubious um, or nefarious, but I think it is that intimate and they have that much say over who has populated our national office in some pretty key roles. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to abscond Nigel of a responsibility, but I do think that generally speaking, we suffer from the putting horns and a goatee on Nigel because it allows us to 
think that guys like Dan Payne and Ross Young must be all teddy bears and rainbows. Right. There's one thing I got to say about Melville, um, or Melville, sorry. Uh, before I got going with Eagles overseas and stuff like this, um, I was involved with building our rugby facility down in Atlanta for the club I played for down there. And we reached out to, or I reached out to him a few times and he got back to me right away. And so for me at that time for the CEO of USA rugby to reply to my requests, my emails, whatever about our facilities, about possibly getting, you know, offering it up as a training for USA rugby, whatever, even though it didn't work out. I thought as a, as a rugby player, older rugby player at the point or getting into the media side, I thought that was great to have an accessible CEO uh, from USA rugby in that, in that aspect. So I give him credit for that. And then the other stuff, whatever happened with that happened with that. Any chance that Bill gets to talk about his old playing days, he's definitely going to do it. So thank you, Bill, for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Two, two ACL replacement knee surgeries later, Bill is still talking about the good old days. I love it. Um, but that's the best part about rugby, right? But, um, Bill, sorry, Pat, let's talk about uh, – I got to go back to, to 2023 and the, the rapid shot. And I know I don't say that right, so I guess I say final qualification tournament. But, right, you said it earlier, right? Like, I don't think anyone here on this call really wanted the U.S. to lose that, right? Because it's – Obviously, there's something about the U.S. being at the Rugby World Cup and that platform. But as you outlined in the article there, like, they were going to be essentially, you know, minnows again, right? Probably going to lose all the games in the group, in the pool play. In your mind, were there really any – could there any really be any benefits to them actually winning that qualification tournament and getting to the Rugby World Cup just for the exposure and with 2031 and 33 hosting duties in the future – you know, this is such a rambling question. Let me try and rephrase it. But uh, would it have been good for the U.S. to at least qualify for the Rugby World Cup this cycle, knowing that 31-33 hosting duties are coming down the line? If we qualified for the World Cup, we would play more games and we would have more funding. And those two things are undeniable. And those two things in the long run are probably better, especially when you're trying to rebuild, having less games and less funding for the next you know, 18 months is not a good thing. It doesn't help. That said, uh, you know, it's the chemotherapy argument, right? You got to kill some stuff to, to, to get rid of some stuff so things can grow again. I'm not a look, USA rugby can be fixed. It doesn't we don't need a nuclear weapon, but what we need is some serious change. And that change is going to take like an overwhelming majority of people to, to, to kind of get it in action. Right. So we have 11 boards of directors on the board. Seven of them come directly from the community. Four of them are independent athletes, and the other three represent the senior club, the high school, and the college games from those councils. So they're effectively our elected officials, if you will, on the board. And so that's the majority of the board. If the three people who are should be acting as fiduciaries for the community and grassroots high school, college, and club games decide to vote like that, and the four independent athletes start voting for not their Eagle teammates – but they're high school, college, or senior club teammates, and they do it as a block, then real significant serious change can happen without, you know, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and the Eagles having to stop playing international rugby for two years. Um, so it's possible to think, change things without nuking everything. Do I think it's super likely? Not necessarily. Like, I used to weigh over 500 pounds. Before that, I weighed 450. Before that, I weighed 400. Before that, I weighed 350. All of those would have been logical places to decide I need to lose weight. But it took over 500 to get me there. So what's it going to take for USA Rugby to lose the weight, so to speak? I don't know, but it's possible to do it from here. 
It's a, it's a good analogy. And Pat, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, it sounds like you've lost a little bit of weight, so that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Health is always important. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Well, so I guess, you know, so you, you bring that up, right? And uh, your playing time, and we've we've talked ad nauseum here about how they need to get together, the Eagles with men's and women, and play and train more. That requires more money. That requires funding. Where is that coming from? It seems like, right, that's going to be coming from, from potentially World Rugby, bailing this out again so wouldn't those funds though wouldn't that go to something good right usa getting together and the eagles playing together and training together more isn't that a good thing ultimately it is a good thing ultimately i mean like world the best analogy maybe in the whole bazillion words i wrote is world rugby gives us money for the same reason that michigan gives appalachian state money remember when appalachian state beat michigan do you think that like there were some very serious conversations from the board of governors or regents on down to the athletic department about what are we doing paying Appalachian state $700,000 to come kick our butts. That is the exact same conversation world rugby is going to have, or probably did have when we beat Scotland. So like they give us money to participate in the competitions that they build their house of cards around. They don't give us money to materially make us better. And I don't mean that they're like pinky in the brain, evilly plotting against American rugby, trying to subjugate us. I just mean they're not overly invested in our victory the way that we are. And the reason the Sevens Eagles have succeeded under Mike Friday isn't because Mike Friday was the magical coach. So we need to find the magical coach for 15s men or 15s women. It was because Mike Friday was a very good coach, surrounded and insulated by a lot of money that was able to make USA rugby accountable and prevent it from some chicanery that other programs who don't have money behind it um, have. So that's what we need is independent organizations filling USA rugby's coffers. So they're less than if world rugby's one and a half million dollars is now, and I'm making these numbers up is now instead of, well, instead of making numbers up, instead of being the second revenue stream, that we have our second largest revenue stream. If it's the fifth, their opinion on who we hire and why is going to matter less. Pat, let's talk about playing time again. Um, there's, you know, some listeners, some people online have, have, you know, been critical about MLR and its impact on USA rugby, but what's the difference with what MLR is doing compared to say premiership top 14, 14, et cetera. I mean, Chile, Uruguay essentially have a couple pool teams works for them. Ireland has like four teams in URC, also works for them, but England's players are scattered amongst 11 teams, premiership clubs, 13 before Worcester and Wasp folded. French players are scattered amongst 14, top 14 teams. So what's the difference? I would say the biggest difference is in the French, I can speak less clearly on, but the English, there's obviously limits on how many non-English players or English capable players you can have in the league. And uh, they mandate that much more of those players that are in the league are American or English um, than we mandate are American in major league rugby. So that's one major difference, right? Is that, you know, in England, the majority of the players spread across the 12 or 13, they're soaking up the salary cap dollars and getting the coaching and getting the reps and getting the playing time uh, in England are English. And in America, the majority uh, are not American eligible or not even on the path to becoming American eligible. So that's one difference. Um, and I also think, like, look, I, I love Major League Rugby, but Major League Rugby, if we zoom out as an American grassroots rugby person, uh, Major League Rugby is there, just like World Rugby is really run by coaches, an old boys committee 
all of whom want their, their unions to win. Major League Rugby is run by a bunch of business owners, all of whom want their business to make money. And that's the number one goal. And that aligns a lot more closely with America being good at rugby and us having good rugby players than England's old boy wanting England to win. But it doesn't align perfectly because if you look at MLS, that's one of the big comparisons you can make about and the negative comparisons that the American Raptors are making that uh, people who do not like Major League Rugby are making is that look at MLS, look how successful it is. It's hard to look. It would be impossible to look at MLS now as anything other than an unmitigated success for every single owner who's invested in it, but has it moved the needle forward for the U.S. soccer team? Um, a lot of people would argue it hasn't. So that is a relationship that we need to be cognizant of. And the reality is, is like there isn't going to be one monolithic group that's going to come in and protect all of the Eagles' interests. The group that's supposed to do that is USA Rugby. No other group is charged with that or is a fiduciary to that mission. Um, but there are a lot of people whose Venn diagrams more overlap with that mission than World Rugby's. And I think that Major League Rugby's one of them. Pat, I'm going to die on this hill all day long, but the America's Rugby Championship, right? Like, shouldn't that come back? I mean, shouldn't the unions in our neck of the woods, Canada, Uruguay, Chile, Brazil, Argentina's 15, right? Their second team. Can't we all just, like, get together again and try and host some of these annual comps so all these players can get meaningful competition at a high-performance level? Like, that's a perfect example that I didn't even use in the bazillion words that we should have warranted a couple paragraphs, right? Like, that was a World Rugby-funded competition. It was overwhelmingly good for us it was overwhelming what was who did they beat it was the largest rankings test upset in the history of rugby at the time and brazil beat somebody they weren't supposed to beat um it was working world rugby pulled the plug why did world rugby pull the plug i don't know what happened to the um churchill cup what happened to the pacific rim cup the pacific rim challenge it's like every year we come up with a new bowl game that we all get excited about and then it's gone a world cup cycle later um so yes america's rugby championship is like, why are we the team we are that can lose to Portugal when a few years ago we were the team that could beat Scotland? Probably the biggest influence in that uh, over and above COVID was the America's Rugby Championship. So uh, you're right to lament that. And But who ultimately makes that decision? It's World Rugby. So let's jump over to Sean. Thanks for coming up again. Hey, yeah, thanks. Uh, Pat, I really like that last line you had. I think it was in the, the, the final kind of stanza about the Raptors. And I was very skeptical about it because due to their kind of one-eyed obsession with crossover athletes, which I've just, that's the hill I'm a die on that, you know, I love bringing American players up, but it's, we, we can't do it now. We need help. We need second generation Americans or grandparents from other countries to, to make it happen. So I've always been a little bit leery of the EXO and then the Raptors. And then you know, I, I see what they're doing. I ended up being lucky enough to coach a couple of their guys, great guys. They came down to Atlanta. I met some of the guys, really good guys. I really liked what they were doing. And now that they're in with the SLAR, we just went down and traveled and played, which was essentially the Cafeteros, which is the Colombian national team. And I really got insight into the Cafeteros and Selcom and like how these were all basically standalone national professional sides. And then I read your article and I was like, that makes really, really good sense. And then I watched the Raptors come down and get beat by life boys. And I was like, all right, there's obviously <laughs> nothing here that's computing. If Colton can rock out with a bunch of 18 year olds and put 38 points on them and send them home packing, then we're, we're not where we need to be. But I ended up talking to one of 
uh, Atlanta's former coaches, Cam Wiper, who's really, really, really smart uh, coach here in the United States in college. And, and he was like, it would make perfect sense. You have the Raptors. Maybe you have another one. You have one in New York, L.A., whatever. And then you essentially run a professional level America's Cup, to Fitzy's point, and let MLR just become old D1. That's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure if there's a question there, but I'll react to your thoughts. <laughs> well, and, the, the, and- the question is, if that is – you're right. I'm sorry. I just left it wide open. The question is, how is that economically viable? Because I still don't understand how Rugby Town pays for the Raptors or whoever does pay for the Raptors pays for it because the guys are making more money on average than the MLR guys. One of the dudes, one of the locks for the Raptors turned down a Rooney contract because he's getting paid more and he's not like a showtime player for the Raptors. So how does that right. even work? I don't know how that economics works. Well, there's without you know putting myself in bad graces, like the, Glendale has always found creative ways to get people income outside of rugby. I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, and they're not the only ones who have done it, but they might have better cover fire uh, for some paychecks than other organizations. Um, and that's one thing. But also, like, Glendale's uh, – the way – and I haven't seen the exact decks, but essentially the cost to get into Major League Rugby, to buy into Major League Rugby is $25 bucks. What they're asking was $10 million for a franchise fee, three – you know, at least three years of operating funds. Put that in an escrow – that's $25 million of free operating cash you need to have. Talking to people who looked at that, looked at those decks, were involved in some of the recent cities that we thought were going to be the other X expansions that didn't get it across the line. Also looked at SLAR decks, also were involved in those. Um, said that you need like $800,000 to run uh, SLAR. SLAR is more of a, we're going to do this a season at a time. And Major League Rugby is, this is a 30-year investment and... Um, this is all about equity for a long play at the end of the day. So I think it's economically viable for Glenn. I think it's a lot cheaper to play in SLAR, even with the travel costs, than it is um, to play in MLR. Um, and I think that's probably, I can't give you the, the spreadsheets or the, the exact line items to make you feel that comfortable, but I, I believe that to be true based on what I know. No, that um, makes sense. Yeah. So, but, but I also, I, what I've heard is that World Rugby does have uh, some part ahead, financing they're they're involved financing the Raptors somehow, either um, helping uh, helping pay for certain players from overseas, or just for the team alone. So uh, when I think about that, when I see that, it, it, in one part of me thinks, does MLR become a feeding program to Raptors, or and or another American-based SAR team or SAR team in the future if they're successful? I mean, we yeah. all want MLR to succeed. We all want it to be as big as Premiership or everything else, but. You know, is it out of our control? Look, I don't think uh, I've also heard that World Rugby's money that they want to drop here. And I think months ago um, when it was first announced, everybody was referencing what they dropped in Japan and thinking that it was going to be a bigger number than that. And I've heard that it is smaller than that, um, that World Rugby's not going to drop that same dollar amount here. And, and maybe it's, you know, it'd be right because you look at how um, fractious the, the, the place is. It would be hard to feel confident about where to put your money um, and expect an ROI. Um, so I don't think that even if world rugby is subsidizing the Raptors, as I alluded to, um, having heard, but didn't have the time to do the investigate, investigative work to actually report that they're doing it. Just saying that I've heard that they were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're actually doing it, I don't think they're doing it to the tune of an amount that would just like make them sign the 15 best Americans. Cause they were outbidding all the MLR teams. Bryce Campbell's with Chicago. He's not in Glendale. Um, so I, I think that, 
that, you know, th- that it's just going to shift that quickly, I-, I think is a little bit of a farce. I also don't think that MLR coaches and, and, and owners, or, sorry, MLR owners are going to allow it to go that direction. I think they're going to have a little more competition in them than that. Speaking of money here a little bit and maybe bringing it back a little bit to, to world rugby in the USA rugby members, right? So well, we're talking dues paying players and coaches and things like that. It seems like there's, they don't quite align, right? Their interests aren't quite aligning. So there's maybe some conflict there with the funding coming from, from world rugby to help USA rugby is how, how do we resolve this? Is there a path forward here that uh, like you envision ideally, you know, looking, gazing into your crystal ball, looking into 2031 and 33, is there a way forward to make this all work? Yeah, there is. And it's, I've alluded to it a little bit, but it's, we have to have stronger independent institutions who can uh, give us airbags and give us uh, leverage against world rugby's money. So we need to make world rugby's money, not our second biggest revenue stream, but bump it as far down that revenue totem pole as we can. And the only way to do that is to have bigger, better, stronger institutions faster. And the way that world rugby and with USA rugby's compliance and complacency uh, helping really retarded the growth of United World Sports. We need to see our board by turning those four independent athlete votes, combining them with those three uh, community votes and committee votes, turning that into a voting block for the membership. And we need to see the independent organizations that are doing well, that are making good things happen, that are producing eagles, that are driving the game line forward. They need to be accelerated by the national office not slowed down by the national office. So that is a significant change. That's not an easy change. That's a significant change. And it's going to take some austerity and some heat at the top level from the board to make it happen because world rugby is not going to just let it happen without some kicking and screaming. The second that they start helping national collegiate rugby, they start helping the rugby foundation. They start helping Eagle impact rugby Academy, right? Like I'm an NCR employee. Take that out of the mix. Look at Eagle impact rugby Academy. It has produced more All-Americans, more Eagles, more like it is doing more than our actual official age grade pathways. And why does it exist? Because Salty Thompson, a decades long yeoman, grassroots, hard worker for American rugby, was kicked out, not treated well on his way out, started his own independent organization. And now it's significantly more effective. It's better and has a higher budget than our entire age grade system put together. So we need our board to recognize when something's happening and working to its benefit, even if it's, it's not doing it on its own and accelerate that. And once we get those independent institutions and organizations bigger and better with more connective tissue between them, we'll be able to have more money in and around the game available to the Eagles and we'll produce better Eagles. We will produce better rugby players and better physical specimens that show up to their first Eagle high performance training in eight years, if we do that for the next eight years, than we have for the last eighteen. We got a, we've got a couple minutes left. This kind of hits on maybe what you talked a little bit about, but so your piece is out. It's been shared pretty widely. What do you hope comes out of it? Immediate next six months, a year out. It, what 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 do you hope comes out of someone reading this piece and any change that might happen? Um, you know, I, I I've been writing pieces. Uh, for a while. And I feel like for the last few years I was at rugby magazine, some of them were like, 
<laughs> I've probably gotten stuck into saying, hopefully this is the one that does something. Maybe this one will jostle something looser. Maybe that next one will. And I don't expect some big significant change. But what I hoped would come out of it is that the people who are part of those independent organizations, the people in the community like Sean here who have power, who are the touch points, right, who are, you know, you don't make the math that is rugby, but we're the ones who sell it and get people addicted to it. And um, those of us that are in the community would, would, you know, maybe remind them some of the stuff that's not flowing around the Internet and how we got here and maybe get them to zoom out a little bit and realize that it isn't going to be they think just a little bit more systemically. And based on the feedback I've gotten, I feel like some of those conversations are happening. Some of that th- those thought processes are happening. So I'm already pretty happy with, frankly, um, the, the what what happened from the article. I don't I don't expect anyone to get fired from it. I wasn't writing to get anyone fired from it. I didn't put names in it for a reason. Um, I think it's systemic, and and I hope that just it'll get people thinking, and hopefully the people, especially that have power in the grassroots, to realize that they have power, and uh, it's going to take some organization. But ultimately, if they want the Eagles to win, if we want the Eagles to win, the grassroots, we're the sugar daddy, and we've got to organize it to uh, to take hold of that power. So, Pat, let's talk college rugby for a second. You mentioned uh, NCR, and you're you're part of that of that that industry, that not industry, that that company. Um, everything obviously is a mess in college rugby. I don't get it. There's <laughs> like there's like twelve sevens championships. There's whatever. You know, can the college game on both men's and women's, you know, can it be consolidated? Can we can we make it one happy family? We can absolutely. I mean, I think that like. I use the American market analogy a lot. And by the way, I, I wrote about this long before NCR was ever talked to me or I ever talked to them. I, I expected all the things that are happening right now to happen. And I wish I could pull it up. I could probably climb in the Wayback machine and get the rugby today article out somehow. But I, I do expect it to happen. Um, f- frankly, the fly in the ointment right now is uh, that world rugby IP enforcement that is still happening. But I do expect it to happen. I think that over time, college rugby will, and it may not be 100% of college rugby is under one umbrella, but right now, NCR is close to 70%. The rest of it is mostly huddle under CRA, which is a new alliance. Um, and then you have Naira, which is independent with all the NCAA schools. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, Naira's its own beast, uh, as long as it's a thing. Uh, it, it, the rest of the schools, I think you'll see, like, over 90% market share consolidate in the next, I don't know, one to five years. Hmm. I think that you'll see it consolidate. I do. And I think that right now what's happening is we used to all be on the government's teat for college rugby programming. I don't think people know this. You said rugby, they ran every playoff before COVID ever. That was the official USA rugby national championship. So then you had comers or rivals that were like rivaling it. That's what United sports was doing rivaling it now USA rugby does not offer a college championship they have just deigned CRAA its own independent organization their official national champion partner so like USA rugby used to run the national championships now they run them not whatsoever and so you have two private parties um, one is really being propped up by its affiliation with USA rugby but I think over time that will consolidate a short answer or a long answer to your short question that we're squeezing in at the end that could probably warrant a whole other Twitter space. <laughs> well, Pat, we appreciate the time. I know we got a minute or two left here and we always leave to like to leave our guests with some quick fun ones. So 
I take it. I understand that you're from the Kansas City area. So, in your opinion, this might be the hardest question to answer. But where's the best barbecue place in Kansas? City? Easiest question on, on the planet to answer. It's called Heart Barbecue. Very <laughs> new. Uh, happens to be like a mile from my thrift store that I own. Uh, it is Texas style barbecue, which pains me to say, but it is uh, without question the best like hunk of beef or hunk of meat you're going to get in Kansas City. It's new and it's unpopular for me to say that, but I'm right. <laughs> Follow-up question. Have you ever heard of monkey gland sauce? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we've had a few South Africans on here and they rave about how it's a sauce that you have to add to barbecue. Does it actually meat. come from a monkey gland? <laughs> oh. I don't I don't think we ever got the understanding of what how it actually got that name, but I'm okay. fascinated by it. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Final question here. Um will the Kansas City Chiefs get back to the Super Bowl this year? I like our chances. We got the best quarterback, the best player in the league, and uh there's no other obvious, you know, front runners here. So I, I like our chances. Nice, nice. Well, it's not my Patriots this year, so that's fine. Um, or next 12 years. <laughs> so, Pat Clifton, thank you so much, man. We really enjoy your writing here. The series is great. Um, can't wait to see what you write next. Um, thank you so much for giving me your time and joining us tonight. Before you guys kick me out, I just want to thank you guys. I want to thank John for giving me a platform to, to put some words out. And um, I, I joked about it in a Twitter DM with him, but, you know, about have you gotten a cease and desist yet? Um, but no, honestly, like you, you did step up there and I think it's big. I thank you. And uh, I reached out to John, not, I don't know how long ago, but uh, when I rugby morning came across my desk, I was like, this guy's doing it right. And I think he's doing a really good job. And I just had a conversation with him. And um, I think he is doing a really good job. And Bill, I think you're doing a great job too. I think that the content you guys are putting out is fantastic. And I know the community appreciates it. And I can't thank you enough for giving me a little oxygen. Well, thanks, Pat. Appreciate it, man. Uh, again, we'll, we'll get you back on here one day again soon, and we'll actually maybe send you a question or two. Although you don't need it. You were ready. <laughs> I'm ready for college rugby. Let's the six-hour marathon. You schedule it. I'm here. <laughs> All right, everyone else listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Please stay tuned online on Eagles Overseas or Rugby Morning on Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, for our next show announcements and guests as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.